Well, as I just mentioned this morning, we are finishing our series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. And, uh, you know, in the second half of this letter, especially, uh, we've seen that Paul is laying out the Christian life for us. Um, When the gospel gets into your life, how does it change you? How does it change your home? How does it change your community? How does it change the world? This week, as we finish, uh, Paul is actually helping us see how does the gospel get out into the world? How does it get out into the world? If you thought last week's passage was offensive, um, wives, submit to your husbands, slaves, obey your masters, this passage almost gives that passage a run for its money in the level of offensiveness because we live in a pluralistic culture. That means that, that there are um, all kinds of things that you believe about the world, things you believe about God, about religion, about politics, about reality. Um, but your life is filled with all kinds of people, friends, neighbors, coworkers, who believe radically different things from you. We live in a pluralistic culture. And yet in this passage, here's Paul, and he's saying, we got to get out and tell people about Jesus. You know what that is? He's talking about conversion. Yikes. If you're a Christian, um, this strikes fear into the hearts of many Christians. Um, and if you're other than Christian, this, a lot of times it just makes people angry. It made me angry before I was a Christian. There are few things more offensive in our culture than this idea of going out and converting people. And yet, here's the thing. It happens all the time. You can't walk through your neighborhood or drive down the street or go into a store or get on social media or open up a newspaper without someone trying to convert you to their belief about something. And it's not just religion. It's everything, especially politics. So here's the question. Is there a way for us to be honest about who we are and what we believe, but do so in a way that, um, that we're still able to live at peace with one another? That's the big question, because there are a few options out there. One of them is, you know, you can hide what you believe, but that just leads to living in fear. Or you can, be, you can make sure that people really know exactly what you believe about everything, but you do it in a way that's shrill or harsh or insensitive or intolerant, and that, that's just living in anger. Um, or is there a way to be honest about who you are and what you believe, but to do so in a way that actually creates peace instead of destroying it? You see, in a pluralistic society, we can live in fear, we can live in anger, or we can live in peace. In this passage, Paul is showing us how to do that last option, which is really good news if you're a Christian, because the, the, the story of the Bible is all about a God who's on a mission to bring healing and renewal to the world. That's God's mission. That's what the whole Bible is about. And so when you become a Christian, you may not know this, but you get automatically co-opted into God's mission to bring healing and renewal to the world. So here's the question. How can we participate as Christians in God's mission to bring healing and renewal in a world in a way that actually contributes to that goal instead of tearing it down? How does the gospel message get out into the world in a way that brings peace? Paul actually shows us three components of how that happens this morning. Um, We have to become people of gracious words. We have to be people of beautiful lives. And we have to be people of dependent hearts. Okay? Gracious words, beautiful lives, and dependent hearts. All right? First, 
We have to be people of gracious words. Um, In verse 3, Paul says, pray for us. He's talking about him and his ministry partners. Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So he's talking about publicly proclaiming the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. But then in verse 6, he says, let your speech, he's talking to the Colossians, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So not only is Paul proclaiming the gospel himself, he assumes that the Colossians are, they're sharing Jesus with other people as well. Now, like I said, this is really offensive in our culture. The idea of getting out and and converting people is just so offensive. We say things like, every person should be free to discover their own spiritual path. Let's not convert anybody. You know what's so ironic about that? If we say that, it shows that we've been converted to a very particular doctrine about religious and spiritual reality. What do I mean? Well, think about the language that we regularly use about religion and spirituality in our culture. So, for instance, I was um, listening to a talk show host recently um, interviewing a political candidate um, who professes to be a religious person. And yes, I'm being purposefully as ambiguous about the identities of these people as I possibly can. But it was really interesting that the talk show host wanted to ask the candidate about their religion, but you could tell they were being very careful, very diplomatic about the way they did that. Um, The the host said, you know, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with religion. Um, Religion is really good for a lot of people. It, It works for a lot of people. So tell me about your religion. Do you understand what's going on there? Now listen, I, I want to be as, as faithful as I possibly can to what I think this talk show host was really saying. I don't want to unintentionally misrepresent what someone is saying. But when we use language about religion um, helping people or religion working for people, the implication is that um, religion or spirituality is not absolutely necessary to live a flourishing human life. We say, you know, if it works for you, great, but if it doesn't, hey, that's okay too. That is a very specific doctrine, and it is a doctrine about religious and spiritual truth that that says religion or spirituality is optional. Um, You know, God may or may not exist, but even if God exists, being connected to this God is not absolutely necessary for living a happy, meaningful, flourishing human life. Other things are more essential and more necessary, but being connected to God is not. If it works for you, great, but if it doesn't, hey, that's okay too. Now, I want to point out two things about that. And the first is, like I said, that is a particular doctrine about spiritual and religious reality that says its primary value is therapeutic. It's kind of like brushing your teeth. You you can choose to brush your teeth, or you can choose not to brush your teeth. I hope that you will brush your teeth, but if you decide not to, you are not going to die. It's not absolutely essential, and if you do choose to brush your teeth, there are a lot of different toothpastes out there for you to choose from. That's the way we think about spirituality in our culture. Not absolutely essential, But that is a particular doctrine. That is a particular way of thinking about spiritual and religious truth. But secondly, and probably more importantly for our conversation here this morning, if we insist 
as a culture, that that is the only appropriate or acceptable way of talking about religious and spiritual truth, then ironically, we're insisting that other people do exactly what we have insisted they must. I'm sorry, we are doing what we have insisted other people must not do. We're trying to convert people. Because if we say all religions are equally true, essentially what we're saying is my view of religion is is the true one. How is that less narrow or less intolerant than saying my religion is the true one? The answer is it's not. Now listen, I understand and I want to affirm, I appreciate the importance, the motivation behind wanting to talk about religion like this is the motivation to want to live at peace in this world. Because there has been so much division and hostility around religion, around spirituality in our world over the years. So I appreciate that motivation and I support that motivation. But But when we ask the question, you know, what is the solution to living at peace in a pluralistic society? If we just pretend that that our beliefs um, don't exist, if we just pretend that we don't have different beliefs, if we pretend like our, our, our differences in belief aren't real or don't matter, that leads to fear or anger, but it doesn't lead to peace. We have to find a way to be honest and open about who we are and, and, and what we really believe in a way that leads to peace. So, um, listen, you know, when we ask the question now, how does the gospel actually get out into the world? How does the message get out in the world? And, and especially in a way that leads to peace. When we look at this passage, the answer on the surface of it looks really counterintuitive. Because like I said, Paul is not only publicly proclaiming the gospel, he's assuming that the Colossians are proclaiming the gospel, but doing so in a way that proclaims the gospel is the one only true religion for everybody in the world. How does that lead to peace? Here's how. Um, You see it in verse 3. Paul says, pray that God may open a door, may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, mystery... um, is one of Paul's favorite words for the gospel. When Paul talks about mystery, he's talking about the gospel, but but when he uses the word mystery, he's using it in a very specific way. When we hear the word mystery, um, we tend to think of mystery as like a puzzle or a riddle, and you have to work really hard to figure it out. That's not what Paul means when he says the gospel is a mystery. It's not a puzzle or a riddle, and you have to work really hard to figure it out. And, and, the, and the, um, the harder the puzzle it is, is the harder you have to work to figure it out. Like you have to be some kind of brilliant polymath genius in order to figure it out. That's not what Paul means when he says the gospel is a mystery. When Paul calls the gospel a mystery, it's not a puzzle that we have to work really hard to figure out. He says it's more like a gift that we would never figure out. It's kind of like a Christmas gift that's wrapped up and sitting under the tree, and you have no idea what it is until you open it up on Christmas Day. Did you ever have a gift like that when you were a kid? You knew it was for you, and it's wrapped up, but you had no idea what was in there, and you just couldn't wait until Christmas morning when you could open up the gift and find out what was inside. That's what the gospel is like. It's not a puzzle that we have to work really hard to figure out. It's more like a gift that's waiting to be opened. All you have to do is open it up and receive it because what is the essence of the gospel? The essence of the gospel is Jesus. So notice again, in verse six, Paul, he calls it the mystery of Christ. Now think about this. It's not the mystery. The gospel is not the mystery of being a good person. He doesn't say it's the mystery of working really hard to make the world a better place. He doesn't say it's the mystery of 
being on the right side of history. Those are important things, and we'll talk about those things in just a moment. But Paul doesn't say that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. He says it's the mystery of Christ, that the essence of Christianity is not being a good person, not working hard to make the world a better place. It's Jesus. That's the essence of Christianity. So when you look at, the, uh, at Christianity, as far as I can see, Christianity is the only religion that, that offers you something like this. There may be others out there. I, I don't know what they are. In 23 years of studying this, as far as I've been able to, to discern, every single other religious leader out there always said, here is the way. Obey these rules. Um, practice these principles. Practice these disciplines. Here's the path. Here's the way. Now you follow it. Jesus never said that. Jesus said, I am the way. He said, I am the way. So again, in, um, in verse 6, that's why Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. Literally, he, sa- he says, let your words be grace words. That when, when he proclaimed the gospel to other people, what we're actually proclaiming is a word of grace, because that is the essence of Christianity. You are not saved by being a good person. You're saved by grace. It's counterintuitive. We would never think it. That's why it's a gift. It's a mystery, because that is not the way the human heart works. The, the way the human heart works is, okay, what do I have to do? Well, how do I have to be a good person? Because it's all about being a good person. And if I work really hard enough, then God will love me and accept me. That's the way our heart works. But grace is so counterintuitive. We would never figure it out in a million years. It, we would ne- that's why it's a mystery. So when we proclaim the gospel, what we're proclaiming are words of grace, gracious words. The essence of the gospel is Jesus and what he has done. And so when we proclaim the gospel to other people, the reason the gospel can actually lead to peace in the world because it's offering the only view of salvation that says that your ultimate status and worth and value and dignity before the God of the universe is not based on anything you do, but on something that has been done for you by grace. When that is the primary truth that defines you as a human being, do you realize what happens? There is no way in the world you can ever look at anyone else in the world and dismiss them, demean them, um, um, criticize them, hold them in contempt. You can never demonize other people. You can never dehumanize other people. The gospel undermines all of the superiority and the hostility and the division that are tearing our world apart. Because the essence of the gospel is Jesus. Christianity is the only religion that says, you are not saved by being a good person. You're saved by grace. You're not saved by your goodness. You're saved by his goodness. And so when the gospel comes into your life, it should make us people of gracious words. Words that, that, I mean, because our lives have been radically reordered and reorganized by the gospel of grace. And when that happens, that actually makes you a mystery to the world around you. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen that um, getting the message of the gospel out into the world means being people of gracious words. But secondly, it means being people of beautiful lives. Beautiful lives. So did you notice at the very end, Paul, he says he wants them, the Colossian Christians, he says, I want you to know how to answer each person. So think about that. Not only does Paul assume that the Colossians are sharing Jesus with other people, he assumes that at least some of the time they're doing so in response to questions that people are asking them. 
So what kinds of questions were they being asked? Why were people asking them questions? Probably lots of reasons, but one of the big reasons, and, and what should be one of the main reasons, is actually staring us right in the face here. Um, in verse 3, Paul says, Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. This is the first time in the letter that Paul mentions the fact that he is in prison for proclaiming the gospel. And literally what he says, on account of which um, I am in chains, because in Roman jails, literally, you were chained up. Now, we may look at that and say, wow, you know, that's kind of harsh. Sure, in our culture, we frown on converting people, but to put somebody in jail for it, I mean, that's maybe just a little bit too far. That's a little unjust. Poor Paul. I want you to know that Paul was not sitting in jail saying, poor me. Because look at how he completes the thought. He says, pray that I declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it, that's the gospel, that I may make it clear. Paul is saying, I'm in prison on account of the gospel in order that I might make the gospel clear. That word clear means known or revealed or manifest. In other words, Paul is saying, my imprisonment is not preventing me from proclaiming the gospel. My, my imprisonment is not preventing me from making the gospel known to the world. My imprisonment is the way the gospel gets made known to the world. Friends, here's the point. When, when your life gets reordered by the gospel... It means that you begin to live your life in a way that is radically different from the rest of the world. It means that you begin to live in a way in which people would look at you and they'd say, hey, what's going on with you? Why would you live like that? Especially when it involves willing suffering. There is nothing more beautiful and, and really nothing more intriguing and perplexing to people than to see someone willingly suffering for the sake of something greater than themselves. They want to know, why would you do that? Why would you live your life like that? Why would you endure something like that? One of my favorite stories about this, um, when I um, moved to New York City years ago, uh, I was attending Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and the pastor there, Tim Keller, told a story one Sunday morning. I'll never forget it. He said, you know, after church one morning, he met a woman who, that, she had shown up at the church, and he said, welcome. Um, you know, how did you find your way here this morning? And she said, well, let me tell you. I work for one of the TV networks here in New York City, and one day recently, I made a huge mistake. It was such a big mistake that I would have gotten fired. I would have lost my job. But my boss took the blame for me, and because he's somebody who had been at the company for many years, because he had a lot of professional credibility in the organization, he was able to absorb that. He was able to take the hit for me, but, but if it hadn't been for him, I would have certainly lost my job. And so she said, so I went to my boss and I asked him, hey, listen, you know, I've known a lot of bosses in the corporate world who will take the credit for something that someone underneath them has done, but I've never met anybody who would take the blame. Why in the world would you do that? And he said, well, since you're asking, I'll tell you, but only because you're asking. And he said, I'm a Christian and I have a Savior named Jesus Christ who took the blame for me, and it, it has reordered the way I live my life, including the way I do my work life. And the woman looked at him, her boss, and she said, where can I learn more about this? 
When you live a life that is radically out of sync, radically different from the way the rest of the world lives, especially when that way involves willing suffering, sacrificing yourself for the sake of something greater than yourself, the world is going to look at you and it's going to want to know why. Why would you do that? Why would you live like that? What is going on with you? There is nothing more beautiful, nothing more intriguing than living a life that is radically different from the rest of the world, especially when it involves suffering. And I want you to know, this is really, really difficult for us as Christians to live like this. Because our world is filled, our, the modern secular West especially, is filled with all kinds of idols, all kinds of, of, of gods. And we as Christians are just as um, infected, just as vulnerable to the gods of our modern secular Western world as anybody else. Um, gods, things like individual freedom, especially sexual freedom. Uh, gods of financial prosperity, um, economic growth for the sake of growth, gods of political power is the one and only way to bring true lasting change to the whole world. The, those are the idols of our modern secular Western world, and we are just as vulnerable to those things as anybody else. So for instance, I was listening to a talk recently uh, by a, an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers, um, he's a great author, and when it comes to cultural analysis, it, really, the man is a savant. He's brilliant. Um, and in this talk I was listening to, he was, he was talking about how um, the modern secularism, Western secularism, has all kinds of, of things that it has promised to us. That the idols of our world have promised us all kinds of things, but now there's a gap between what the idols have promised and what's actually being delivered. That individual autonomy, sexual freedom, financial prosperity, economic prosperity, um, political power, um, science and technology as the ultimate um, salvation of the world, that all of those things have promised one thing, but they've delivered, they haven't um, delivered on their promises. And as a result, he says, there's a gap now that we experience in, in our lives. There's a gap between what the idols promise and what they actually deliver. And as a result, you look at our world now, we're filled with epidemic levels of loneliness. I, I heard recently that Britain actually has a minister, an official government official, a minister of loneliness to deal with the loneliness epidemic in England. Our lives are filled with epidemic levels of loneliness, um, anxiety, depression, suicide, addiction, especially among young people. The idols of our culture have radically failed to deliver what they promised, and now as a result, there's a gap. In this talk, Mark Sayers was saying, as Christians, we have a tendency to think that, that our main task in the world is, is to desecularize the world, as though the problem were out there in the world. The, the problem was with the world out there. We have to desecularize the world. He says, no, it's really much more basic than that. That our main task as, as Christians in this cultural moment is not to desecularize the world, it's to desecularize ourselves. That when we look at the world out there, it's not to say the problem is with the world, the problem is with us. We need to be desecularized. When that happens, when we actually begin to start detoxing our, ourselves from, from all the idols that fill our culture and listen, I think it's important to say, I say this frequently, but idols, we never make idols out of bad things. Idols are always good things. 
There's nothing wrong with freedom. There's nothing wrong with economic prosperity. Politics is a good and helpful thing. Science and technology have brought wonderful goods into our lives. But when we make idols out of these things, they actually fail to deliver what they promised in our lives because we've demanded that they do something for us that they don't actually have the power to do. And when we start detoxing our lives from those things, what happens is we begin to look different, we begin to live different. The world is going to want to know, what's up with you? Why would you live like that? Why would you do that? And when they do that, we have an opportunity, just like the guy at the TV network, to say, well, let me tell you why. And one of the simplest ways to do this is just don't hide who you are. Just a lot of times we think, you know, I've got to be like a biblical scholar or a theological expert. I have to have all of the answers in order to be able to talk to people about my faith, or I'm really afraid, I'm really nervous. A lot of times we're so afraid and so nervous about, about our Christianity that we just hide. Things that you would normally say to maybe another Christian, you just, you kind of hide who you are and what you believe because you don't want to tell people about that. Just don't hide. It's not something we, extra we have to do. It's just stop doing something. Don't hide who you are. When people ask you, when they see the beautiful lives, when they see that your life looks different from the rest of the world, just don't hide who you are. Friends, participating in God's mission in this world means that we should be people of gracious words. Secondly, we should be people of beautiful lives. But secondly, um, I mean thirdly and lastly, we should be people of dependent hearts. And really, this is probably the most important part of this whole thing. Because here's the big question. How are we actually going to really be able to be people of gracious words and beautiful lives? How are we going to do that? How are we going to live like that? I want to show you Paul's solution. And it's very easy to miss. We just kind of glide right over it. But, um, but when I show it to you, you're going to say, that's it? It's too simple. Yeah, it is simple, but therein lies its power. In verse 2, notice Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So there it is. It, the secret for a beautiful life is prayer. And, and I trust you're all saying in your hearts, what? That's it? It's too simple. But it's not just any kind of prayer. First of all, the, the main verb that he says there is not, it's not pray. The main verb is, is continue steadfastly. Persevere in prayer. Be diligent. Be constant. Never stop praying. That the main verb is persevere, but even more than that, that the main thing here is Paul says, do it with thanksgiving. That's the part we just glide right over with thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, gratitude. When you read through the letter to the Colossians, you'll notice one of the themes that keeps coming up over and over and over again is that Paul keeps telling them to be people who are always giving thanks. Always giving thanks. It's one of the main themes in Colossians. Why? Think about it. When you say thank you, what are you doing? G giving thanks is a way of acknowledging dependency. When you say thank you, it's a way of saying, I could not have provided this in my life. I, I, I don't have the power. Um, I needed help. Thank you for giving me the help that I needed. Giving thanks is a way of cultivating radical dependency. And there is nothing, therefore, more powerful for deconstructing all of the idols that fill our lives and take us captive. Because what do idols do? 
Idols are always trying to get us to buy in to, um, to the illusions of self-sufficiency and control. That's what we want to have. Um, idols of individual freedom, sexual freedom, uh, financial prosperity, political power, um, science and technology, um, always getting us to buy in to the idols of self-sufficiency and control because those things are all about sufficiency and control, having control over our lives. But when you say thank you, it's a way of expressing radical dependency, radical insufficiency, radical loss of control. Or I, more accurately, you should say radical loss of the illusion of control because we never had that control in the first place. The more that happens, the more beautiful your life becomes, the more um, intriguing your life becomes to the world around you. Because um, what you're experiencing now is spiritual renewal. Radical dependency is a way of experiencing spiritual renewal. You know, in our culture, like I've said, conversion is it's kind of a dirty word. But conversion is really just another way of talking about spiritual renewal. It's a way of talking about spiritual awakening. It's really a, a way of talking about transformation. We love the idea of transformation, don't we? I mean, how many books and YouTube videos and courses are out there on how to live a transformed life, only when we think about transformation, we think about how can I become more powerful? Gospel transformation is how can I become more dependent so that God's power can come into my life? That's renewal. That is, that is becoming truly converted. And you know what the world really needs right now? Yes, the world needs renewal. Yes, the world needs healing. Yes, it needs to be converted. But what it needs even more than that is for you and me to be converted or reconverted or renewed spiritually. What it needs for us, for you and me, is to be radically dependent before God on our knees crying out for help and saying thank you for the help that we receive. And when that happens, what, what happens is the world sees that and it wants to know, hey, what's up with you? Why would you live like that? What's going on with you? The only way that happens is for us to develop a constant, grateful, prayerful dependency on God. And I don't know any way that that can happen other than um, spending regular, consistent time gazing upon the truly beautiful one, Jesus Christ, who lived the ultimate beautiful life of self-sacrifice. Because Jesus Christ, who is he? He's the one who has all the power. He has all the sufficiency. He has all the control. He's the God of the universe. He, he rules over all things on the throne of heaven from all eternity. And yet this all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-controlling one came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He became a human being and became what? Radically dependent. And on the cross, Jesus Christ let go of his power. He relinquished his sufficiency. He, he let go of control. Friends, there is nothing more out of control than being stripped naked and having your hands and your feet nailed to a cross. And yet the God of the universe, the creator of all things, Jesus Christ, he did that for you. He lived the ultimate beautiful life of self-sacrifice and of giving yourself up for the sake of others. And the more you look at that, the more you see him doing that for you, the more you become renewed and transformed into the very same image. The more you bring that vision of what Jesus Christ did for you into your life, the more you begin to share in his sufferings, the more beautiful your life becomes um, as a result. And the more the world is genuinely going to want to ask you, hey, what is up with you? That's what happens because, friends, God can do amazing things in this world. 
I will tell you, um, God can do amazing things, but it will never happen if we are not regularly on our knees in radical dependency on God, asking Him to bring that renewal into our lives first. God has done amazing things throughout history. There have been times throughout the history of the world, I love reading these stories, times when God has brought widespread, radical, revolutionary healing and change to not just um, communities, not just cities, but to whole countries, and sometimes even to the whole world. It's called revival or spiritual awakening. I know that's kind of sometimes a weird religious-sounding word, but you know what revival is? Revival is when personal spiritual renewal goes viral. It's when something that happens to you as an individual happens to a whole community, happens to a whole city. Sometimes it even happens to the whole world. So for instance, in the 18th century, you may have heard of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. God used John Wesley um, as a spark that brought spiritual awakening, spiritual transformation to the whole country of England. Thousands upon thousands of people were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Their lives were changed forever. And even more than that, um, the spiritual awakening that happened in England at at that time produced large-scale social change. It was massive, large-scale social change, things like prison reform, um, the abolition of slavery. It was such... um, profound social change that historians regularly agree that because of that spiritual awakening in England at that time, uh, that that was the primary thing that kept England from having a bloody political revolution that, that, that happened in France. They'll debate whether or not that was actually a good thing, but nobody denies that the reason England didn't have a bloody political revolution was because of the spiritual awakening that happened in the country. So I mentioned Mark Sayers a bit ago. In that talk that I was listening to him, he says, you know, so he's Australian, and he mentions the fact that um, as an Australian, you know, back in the 18th century, John Wesley sent out Methodist circuit riders on horseback preaching the gospel in Australia. And as a result, hundreds of years later, he's a Christian. And so he he was sharing that um, he and his wife were... um, They were so moved by this idea that they decided they wanted to um, travel to the United Kingdom and and go to places um, around London and the rest of the country where spiritual renewal, spiritual revival had broken out and pray in those places. How's that for a vacation plan? So they go and they're doing this, and one of the places that they went to was the home of John Wesley. I think it's in London. There's tours that they give of his house. And he said at the end of the tour, they take you to his study. It's a tiny little room. And in the middle of the room, there's this little kneeling pad where John Wesley would keep his Bible. And what he would do is is he would get down on his knees and and he would pray in that little study. Every morning he would do that. And Mark Sayers says that as he stood there looking at this little kneeling pad in this tiny little room, he realized that, that the profound awakening and spiritual renewal that had happened all over the world, that the profound social changes that had happened all over the world in places like England and Australia and even here in America, that in many ways a lot of that began with this one person all by himself on his knees on a kneeling pad in his, in his study just praying. And he, so he was there and he said that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the tour guide was a Nigerian woman who had been converted um, in Nigeria at a Wesleyan church. And now she was living in London and she was giving tours of John Wesley's house. 
<coughs> excuse me. And the only other person on the tour was a Korean pastor who was wearing a bright fluorescent shirt that said revival on it. And, and, and the, the, the tour guide said to them, hey, you guys are pastors. Would you pray? And Mark Sayers says, you know, at that moment, you're a pastor. You always feel obligated to offer some eloquent prayer, some kind of formalized, stylized prayer. You know, you get asked to pray all the time. And he said, at that moment, looking at that kneeling pad, realizing that the change that had happened throughout the world as a result of just one person in his room all by himself praying, all he felt compelled to pray, all he felt called to pray, all he could pray at that moment was, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Do you believe that God could do it again? It begins with you. It begins with me. It begins with us. It begins with the church. It begins with with the church falling on its knees at the end of ourselves, at the end of our self-sufficiency, at the end of, of all our idolatrous need for having control of our lives, on our knees in prayerful, radical dependency on God, praying, God, do it again. Open the gates of heaven on bended knee. Do you believe that God could do it again? Friends, the only way this kind of change happens in the world is if we become people of gracious words, if we become people of beautiful lives, and most of all, if we become people of dependent hearts, that we would be people who are radically dependent on our knees before God, praying, God, do it again. That kind of change is possible. Do you believe it's possible? Not just in your life, but in the whole world. That change is possible, and it's only a prayer away. Let's pray.